The sermon lesson this morning comes from Galatians 3, chapter 3, which I will now read. Please don't stand. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. As you have just heard, Paul is dealing with a controversy in the Galatian church. False teachers have been leading the Galatians astray by teaching them that to be justified, they must follow the Judaic law. In effect, they must become Jews. So Paul questions them concerning whether they feel they are justified by faith or if their good works somehow influence how they are perceived by God. Does God give us heavenly points for doing good? Most of you know that when I was a productive member of society, my occupation was in the law, at least in the enforcement end. My fellow law enforcers and I would, just for fun, try to find the most obscure statute to enforce. I found one called the Drover Law. This law held that it was illegal to drive your herd of cattle through town at a speed greater than a walk because running cattle stirred up too much dust. I never got to enforce that statute, but I really wanted to. As far as I know, this law is still on the books. Paul, in this section of his letter that we see as chapter 3, begins by questioning the mental state of the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. He follows this up with a carefully worded rhetorical question. Who has bewitched you? This is not a question you would ask a Christian, but one you would ask someone who believes in pagan magic. It's meant to shock the Galatians. In effect, Paul is saying, have you lost your senses? Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray for open ears to hear your message and a clear mind to understand your word. I pray that I might be a proper messenger for this message given by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning as I discuss Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to break it down into five points which I think are already in the bulletin, so I'm not going to go through them. The confusion over this topic is not new. As a matter of fact... Paul had to rebuke Peter at one time because Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles because they weren't following the Judaic law regarding food. In effect, Paul was suggesting that works were indeed necessary for salvation. And the confusion did not stop after Paul wrote this letter. It continued through the Reformation and to a certain extent continues today. So, why do we need laws? Human beings are by nature selfish, greedy, grasping creatures. Why? Because we're fallen and sinful. Consider for a moment what the world would be like if everyone exercised total freedom of action. If you really think about it, it should be frightening. Freedom is a good thing, but freedom without restraint is license. In order to live in groups larger than one, we have to have some way to restrain our evil desires. Laws keep a society from descending into anarchy. This has been true since the first group started to form into civilizations, and it is true today. How do laws work? Laws work by having a penalty attached for disobeying them. It might be a fine, or it might be a time period removed from society. 
The threat of a penalty is a powerful restraint. God established law when he made his covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. We all know what happened. And because Adam was our federal head, we were all subject to the penalty for disobedience. We had to live under the curse of the law. Paul then reminds the Galatians in a questioning way that they have received the Spirit not by works, but by hearing the gospel and believing. He reminds them that when he was with them, he told them of his own conversion. This was not some rumor, but a firsthand, authentic account of the grace of God given through the Holy Spirit. He then uses Abraham as an example. Abraham was not under the law when God first spoke to him. Abraham was pagan. He did, however, hear the word of God from himself, and he believed. And because of his faith, God counted it as righteousness. According to Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, God made a promise to Abraham. I will surely surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God didn't say, because you did this or that, or because you sacrificed your son, or because you built an altar to me. It was because of Abraham's faith that the promise was given. As time progressed and the covenant people were formed through Isaac and Jacob, through the Exodus, God established his law through Moses. First with his commandments on Mount Sinai, then there were the civil laws for the people, the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial laws. By best count, 613 separate statutes. Paul tries to get the Galatians to realize that it is by faith alone that they were saved, as he originally taught them. And if they live by faith, then they are the spiritual sons of Abraham, and therefore inheritors of the promise. He continues by telling them that if they persist in believing that their salvation depends on works of the law, then they should know that if they fail in obeying the law, they fall under the curse. Paul goes on to remind the Galatians that the law came 430 years after the promise, that a promise given cannot be annulled, and that the law does not displace or abrogate the promise. So then, why was the law given in the first place? One reason I've already talked about, so that people could live together in relative peace. Another reason was to keep the Jews mindful of their sin. When the Israelites witnessed sacrificial sin offerings of the law, they were reminded of their own failings and weaknesses. In verse 13, Paul stresses the fact that Jesus was the offspring of Abraham by whom all the nations would be blessed, and that he, Jesus, paid the price, not only for sin, but also took on himself the curse of the law for all mankind. As scripture says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul continues his discourse by comparing the law to the promise. He begins by explaining why the law was put into place, again to restrain conduct and highlight failings. 
He then explains that the law was never meant to last forever, only until the offspring of the promise should appear. With the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the promise had been fulfilled. Jesus kept the law perfectly, and in so doing, removed the penalty of the law. Christ fulfilled the contract that God established with Adam. Adam, Adam. The debt was paid for all. Mankind was no longer under the curse of sin, and all were made right with God through the person and works of Jesus Christ. There was another issue here which Paul did not address directly in this part of his letter, something nebulous, hidden in the background, the elephant in the room. The problem that Paul does not talk about, but am sure he is conscious of, is that when the Galatians continue to insist that works of the law are necessary for salvation, what they are really saying is they, they don't believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for their salvation. They don't really believe. I ask you, how can God do anything insufficiently? Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice what is not said here. It doesn't say, with your help. I'll never understand why some people feel that what they do, their small, imperfect, sinful, pathetic attempts to do good works, will somehow bring them one inch closer to their salvation. I think it was Martin Luther who said, the only thing we bring to our salvation is sin. And this is true. Through faith in Christ we are reborn. Through Christ we are justified. Through Christ we are sanctified. Through Christ one day we will be glorified. Through Christ alone. This tug of war over faith or works was debated extensively by the Westminster Divines as they worked to compile the confession. There were those who were teaching that works were a necessary part of salvation. There were also those who felt that since Christ paid the price for the law and sin, that they were no longer under the law, and that they were also already perfect. The divines had to address these beliefs, and through the scriptures, disprove them and expose the false teachers for what they were. Still today, there are individuals and religions that believe that works of the individual are necessary for salvation. This belief indicates a faith in oneself. I, for one, have no such faith in myself. In verse 21, Paul asked the question, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And then he answers his own question, Of course not. God established both the promise and the law. The law served its function until the promise was fulfilled. So then, does the law still serve a function today? The laws of Moses are no longer binding on us. We don't follow Jewish food laws or rites of purification. Jesus himself condensed the Ten Commandments into two when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, in all your soul, in all your mind, in all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. The function of the law now is to guide us toward those works which are pleasing to God. Yes, I said works. 
But why do good works if they are not necessary for salvation? We do them in gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We do them because God has asked us to love our neighbor. We do them out of loving obedience. We do them in faith. In the final paragraph of chapter 3, Paul explains that since God's promise to Abraham was that all people will be blessed by his offspring, that since the coming of Jesus, all barriers have been broken down. Anyone who accepts Jesus Christ by faith is justified. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These verses are not teaching that the distinctions between slave and free or male and female have been removed. What is talked about here is a unity in Christ, a unity which celebrates our diversity, not our sameness. Whoever you are, if you believe by faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the family. You are an inheritor.